This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. Welcome. Um, I'm really happy to see all of you here, some familiar faces and some new faces. Uh, my name is Deborah Satz, and I direct the Ethics in Society program that's been sponsoring the Ethics of Food and the Environment, a program of films and speakers that examines why and how our food choices matter. We've looked at the implications of the food we eat for the environment, for animal welfare, for global warming, and for personal health. Prime Minister William Gladstone once pointed out that our society's budgets aren't merely matters of arithmetic, but also records of what we care about and what our values are. So too, it turns out, is our supermarket spending. As tonight's speaker has noted, supermarkets are ground zero for our food decisions, and these decisions are not merely financial ones. One of the aims of our program is to show that the nightly question of what's for dinner raises important and complex moral issues. We're extremely fortunate to have with us tonight a speaker who's thought long and hard about some of the issues that our food choices raise. Marian Nessel is the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at NYU, and a prolific writer and researcher about food. Professor Nessel received both a PhD in molecular biology and a Master's of Public Health in Public Health Nutrition from UC Berkeley, and is the author of several very important books, including Safe Food, Bacteria, Biotechnology, and Bioterrorism, Food Politics, how the food industry influences nutrition and health, and what to eat. For her work, she's won a Lifetime Achievement Award from the James Beard Foundation, which is the food world's highest honor. Her research is focused on the scientific and social factors that influence our food choices. For example, the way that food companies pay supermarkets to get their products, like salty potato chips and other junk foods, positioned prominently in huge displays. But she's also acutely alive to the ways that the confusing world of nutrition scientists, uh, science, whose results are often uncertain and contested, can sometimes leave most people simply bewildered about what to eat. How can you make responsible choices if nutritionists themselves disagree? Who's responsible for what we eat? After today's, tonight's lecture, there'll be some time for questions but I'd like to invite all of you back tomorrow for a more in-depth discussion of the issues of food choice and responsibility. We're very fortunate to have two local, if not locally grown, experts to kick off the discussion with Marian Nessel. Christopher Gardner, an associate professor in the Stanford Prevention Research Center and also a nutrition scientist, and David Magnus, the director of Stanford Center for Biomedical Ethics. That discussion tomorrow morning will take place, well, where else? In Manzanita Dining Commons, where from 10 to 12, we'll have a discussion about food that should be intellectually stimulating and fun. Um, and I'd like to thank, to end my introduction simply by thanking Joan Berry, um, who's coordinated the series. So welcome to Marion Nessel, and uh, welcome to all of you.
Uh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here and an honor to be part of this series. Um, I love coming back to the Bay Area, and it's this is home. Um, I'm going to be talking uh, in about the work that I've been doing, which is uh, very much focused on the issue of personal versus social responsibility. And I'm not going to be discussing this specifically as a matter of ethics, but I think the ethical issues will be very obvious in just about everything I'm talking about. My own work is, deals with food systems, and what I mean by that is the relationship of agriculture to food, to nutrition, to health, and the, and the interconnections among those uh, entities which are usually dealt with in academic institutions in separate fields that don't talk to each other. Um, and in my work, I'm what I'm trying to do is to bring uh, these things together. I don't think that you could talk about obesity and food safety without understanding how our agricultural system works. And we can talk later about some very prominent recent examples of precisely that point. Um, and for my starting point for this, is um, public confusion about nutrition and health. As a nutritionist, I'm always accosted by people uh, saying, you know, why don't you just tell us what to eat? And um, why is nutrition so confusing? And one of the reasons why nutrition is so confusing is that it tends to focus on nutrients rather than foods. And for those of you who were fortunate enough to hear Michael Pollan earlier this week, uh, I will give him enormous amounts of credit for making that point in a way that everybody can hear it. Um, if you talk about nutrients, doing so has many, many implications for the way that uh, people think about food. And what we're all trying to do these days is to bring um, nutrition back into the food realm, and that's what I'm going to try to do. Um, so if nutrition is confusing, I think that's really too bad because you don't have to be a genius to figure out what it is you're supposed to be eating. And it's so simple um, that I can summarize it in why is it doing that? <laughs> oh, how interesting. Why is it doing that? Does anybody have any idea? Let's try that. There. Uh, I can summarize it in one slide. Um, this is, this is my somewhat longer version of the pollen the haiku, but mine came first. Uh, eat, eat less, move more, eat, eat plenty of fruits, vegetables, and whole grains. Don't eat too much junk food. Enjoy your dinner, and please don't eat my book. Um, so if it seems complicated and if it seems more difficult than that, then the, sure, the, uh, the reason surely has to do with the effect of this kind of advice on the food industry. Um, and to explain this is really pretty simple. Uh, if you're going to do something about obesity and you're going to eat less, um, that, as it turns out, is very bad for business. And the food industry realizes that and is extremely worried about obesity. And um, there was um, this article in Advertising Age last year with an executive from Coca-Cola who made this point as clearly as any place that I've seen it lately. And her point was that the food industry is extraordinarily vulnerable to obesity. It used to be that the food industry could just kind of dismiss uh, obesity out of hand as a matter of personal responsibility, but today it's become so obvious that it's a social issue uh, that they are all quaking in their boots over what it means for uh, a situation in which eating less is going to be something that everybody is talking about. And obesity is, um, is, is a, a 
an enormous problem in the United States uh, for, on many, many levels. It's not just a cosmetic problem, and it's not just a problem of, his, of uh, appearance. It does raise the risk for uh, type 2 diabetes, for example, and it's not that everybody who is overweight gets type 2 diabetes. In fact, the percentage of overweight people who do have type 2 di diabetes is extremely small, but it's rising and it's rising in parallel with rising rates of obesity. And this is going to have enormous consequences, not only for the people who have uh, obesity-related conditions, but also for society at large. So if you have a problem like this, the question is, what are, you, what are you going to do about it? And there are two general approaches. The first is um, expressed by this extremely offensive cover that was on The Economist a few years ago that I think exemplifies the personal responsibility approach really well. Uh, there was a quotation in the magazine that said, if people want to eat their way to grossness in an early grave, let them. They're adults. They know what they're supposed to do. Um, and all you, if you're somebody who's interested in intervening in the personal responsibility approach, it's very simple what you do. You just teach people to eat better and hope that they will. Well, we know that that approach hasn't worked very well, and I think the reason that it hasn't worked very well is because of what the New York Times a few years ago called the gorge yourself environment, an environment in which there's too much food, too many choices, and far too much eating. And here, if you want to intervene and you want people to eat more healthfully, you have to change society, which is much more difficult to contemplate than trying to teach somebody, an individual, about what that person is supposed to have for dinner. And obviously, Obviously, it's the social and the changing society approach that I want to talk about this afternoon. Well, if you want to change society, you have to figure out by, you have to start by figuring out what it is about society that needs changing. And to understand what that's about, we need to uh, take a look at the rise in rates of overweight and obesity in the United States. And that started to happen in the early 1980s. So I think it's interesting to ask the question, what happened in the early 1980s that made people start to gain weight in a way that they never had before? And I think there are three things that are responsible. Um, the first is women in the workplace. I think it's important to start these things with blaming women, don't you? Um, <laughs> So the interesting, that's always the one that's used first. Women went into the workforce, and that created a demand for convenience. Well, if you look at this graph, uh, 1980 is about halfway up a slope of uh, women going back into the workforce that started in the 1950s. And so it hasn't really changed much. Maybe it reached a tipping point. But I don't think that women going into the workforce is the real cause of rising rates of obesity. I think a second cause is much more important. And that was a change in farm policy that occurred in the late 1970s. Um, and in that farm policy, which you probably heard about from Michael Pollan, um, that was when the farm policy changed. So instead of farmers being paid to not to grow food, farmers were paid to grow as much food as they possibly could, from fence post to fence post. Um, and our farmers were very smart about doing what they were getting incentives to do. And the result of that was mountains of corn in a sea of farm subsidies. Um, we still have those mountains of corn. They're being used for ethanol now. But uh, the, the subsidies are still there. 
Um, the growing of more food had several effects. One of those effects was a continuation of a very long-term trend um, to reduce the cost of food in the United States as a percentage of overall income. That's a very long-term trend. It started in the 1950s, but the trend accelerated and continued um, in the, in the, from 1980 on. But a more important, uh, and the, um, the point about the cost of food being very low is that that made it very easy for people to eat out so that people started eating outside the home more. Um, and it's now about 50% of the food dollar is spent on food that is prepared outside the home. But I think a more important consequence of the change in farm policy was the enormous rise in calories in the food supply that occurred since 1980. In 1980, we had an average of about um, 3,200 calories per person per day available for every man, woman, and child in the country. Today, it's 3,900 calories a day. This isn't what people are actually eating. This is what's available for consumption. So there's this tremendous rise in the number of calories in the food supply. And, um, and that, as we'll see, has had some very profound consequences. If you're a food company, and you are producing a food in a situation in which there are 3,900 calories a day available for every man, woman, and tiny little baby in the country, twice as much as anybody actually needs. You're in a situation that's extremely competitive. Um, so the food industry is very competitive because there's twice as much food available for consumption as anybody needs. But that's not the only problem. Uh, and that brings me to the third thing that happened in the early 1980s. And this was a speech by Jack Welch, who was then head of General Electric. Um, and in, in this 1981 speech, um, Welch made the statement that he thought that all this business about blue, blue chip stocks was something that we should be getting rid of. Instead of blue chip stocks and these very long-term slow investment, we needed higher returns on investment immediately. And that kicked off what was called the shareholder value movement, um, which very effectively changed the way Wall Street looked at companies. Um, and for food companies, the pressure was particularly intense because food companies were already trying to sell their products in a situation in which there was twice as much food available as anybody needed. And now, on top of that, they not only had to make a profit, but they needed to grow their companies. They needed to report growth to Wall Street every 90 days. Um, and I think this is the root of a great deal of difficulty and a great deal of the problems that occurred later because in trying to do just what they had to do to meet the business objectives, food companies changed society in ways that I think we never noticed. So let me talk about those societal changes. And in the next series of slides, everything with an exclamation point is a factor that has been shown by research to encourage people to eat more calories than they otherwise would. Um, so food was cheap. There was a lot of food available. People, people began eating outside the home more. Uh, variety is one of the factors that encourages people to eat more. That's the buffet syndrome. You eat more at a buffet than you do if there's just one thing in front of you. Um, and food outside the home has many more calories in it than food that is prepared at home. So that's a societal change. 
Um, the most obvious one is portion size. And this is a graph. The red line on this is calories in the food supply. You've already seen that, uh, in this case, from 1970 to the present. The blue bars are work done by my former doctoral student now, Dr. Lisa Young, who measured the introduction of large size portions into the food supply. And you can see that the introduction of large size portions exactly tracked with the rise in calories available in the food supply, you don't need anything more than large portions to account for rising rates of obesity. Um, and here she is, Lisa Young, um, at her doctoral dissertation defense. Um, <laughs> With, and uh, I'm showing a picture of her book. The white cup on the far left is a Department of Agriculture uh, single serving for a soft drink. Uh, if it's, it's, it's an eight ounce cup, if it doesn't have too much ice in it, it has about 100 calories. The double gulp on the right is a cup that she, that's a set of cups that she bought at our local movie theater near NYU. And that is a 64 ounce cup. If it doesn't have too much ice in it, it holds 800 calories worth of soft drink. Um, so you don't really need any, anything more than that to explain that larger portions have more calories. Uh, this is something that is not, <laughs> I guarantee you, this is not intuitively obvious. And we know that it's not intuitively obvious because of the work of Brian Wansink, who is a professor at Cornell, but now on leave with the Department of Agriculture. And this is a slide of his famous Super Bowl experiment in which he invited some of his own students to his house to watch the Super Bowl with him. They should have known better. Um, <laughs> and, and he gave, he put them in two separate rooms. He separated them into two groups and gave some of them popcorn in four-quart bowls and some of them popcorn in two-quart bowls. And then he measured the amount of popcorn that they ate. These were his own students. <laughs> They fell for it anyway. So that graph is what they did. The students who got the popcorn in the four-quart bowls ate almost twice as much popcorn um, as the ones who got it in the two-quart bowls. And worse than that, they underestimated the amount of popcorn they were eating by a much greater amount than the, than the underestimation of the people who had uh, two-quart bowls. So large portions do three things. They have more calories, they encourage people to eat more calories, and they encourage people to underestimate the number of calories that they're eating by a much larger amount. I don't think you need anything more, but there is more. Um, so here's ubiquity. I love to ask the question, when did it become okay to eat in bookstores? I guarantee you that that's since 1980. When I went to, 19, when I went to NYU, you in 1988, uh, the library had signs all over it and guards stationed at the doors, keeping students who were bringing drinks and food into the library with signs all over the library saying, you can't eat in here. Now we have two cafes in our library. Ubiquity is something that encourages people to eat more. If food is there, people will eat it. Proximity is another one, and this is the reason why food advocates are so concerned about vending machines in uh, schools, because there's a direct proportion uh, between the number of products that are purchased from vending machines and the number of vending machines. So the object of the game, if you're a soft drink seller, is to have as many vending machines available as possible. Um, that's proximity. 
Frequency is another. I love Taco Bell's fourth meal, the one between dinner and breakfast. Just what you need. The research shows that the more times a day you eat, the more calories you eat. Sorry about that. Um, and then low prices. Uh, somebody sent me the slide from, it must be a, a Burger King in San Francisco someplace. That certainly looks like San Francisco. Uh, so now you can pay rent and eat because food is so cheap. And the example that I like to give and have been giving for a long time is if you go into McDonald's with $5, you have a choice. You could buy five hamburgers or one salad. Now, you have to ask the question, what that, what's that about? Well, what that's about is farm policy and what foods get subsidized and what foods don't. But low prices are an incentive to eat more. Um, and we can talk later about what's wrong with low prices. Everybody loves low prices. It would be fine if the, the salad had the low price and the hamburgers were more expensive, maybe. Um, so those are the kinds of things that um, are leading up to the question of you know, what it is that, that's in society that has been encouraging people to eat more. Well, that may change because we are, as The Economist says, very close to being at the end of cheap food as cars are eating vegetables and we're putting foodstuffs into automobiles and growing food for ethanol. And we're already seeing that in rising food prices uh, all over the world, not only here. So these are the kinds of things that I talk about in my books, Food Politics and Safe Food, that came out in 2002 and uh, 2003, respectively, although Food Politics is now in a new edition. And as I was going around the country uh, giving talks like this to various groups, people would say, oh, your books are really interesting, the politics is really interesting, but you didn't tell us what to eat. Um, and the first time I heard that, I was kind of floored by it because, you know, I do public health. I don't do individual dietary counseling. I was kind of, <laughs> was, uh, help, help. Um, and then when I heard it for the third or fourth or tenth time, I thought, you know, I really have to find out what's going on here. So I started asking people, what was it about eating that they didn't know how to do? Um, <laughs> and, and people started telling me that they had trouble making decisions in supermarkets. That also came as a surprise. Um, and it came as a surprise because I live in Manhattan where we don't have any supermarkets. So I kind of didn't know what they were talking about. Um, but what they were telling me was that for them, and they described it just like this, that supermarkets were ground zero for their anxiety about food choices. Um, they said things like, I feel like a deer caught in headlights when I go to a supermarket. Um, sometimes I go to supermarkets and burst into tears, one of my friends told me. And what that was about was um, going into supermarkets and seeing danger absolutely everywhere, or going into supermarkets and being absolutely paralyzed by the choices. Um, and, and, and then feeling like what they really wanted was for somebody <laughs> just to make it simple. So I thought, you know, I could do this. Uh, so I started, um, I spent a lot of time in Ithaca, which is in upstate New York, and I started going to the Wegmans supermarket in Ithaca in upstate New York, which is a, Wegmans is a family-owned um, store chain so that they can do some things that um, others less, less that other publicly traded companies can't do. Um, and I spent a year going to supermarkets and just going up and down the aisles trying to ask 
questions that anybody might have about any of the food products. Is it nutritious? Um, is it good for the environment? Is it ethical? What's the best choice in this? And the result was my book, What to Eat, which I spent a year, a year doing the research for. I had a lot of fun doing it. Supermarkets are really interesting places. I don't know what other people do when they go visit new cities, but I go to supermarkets. So the first thing that I learned was that supermarkets are run by rules. Uh, and that you think of a supermarket as being a social service agency, but it is not. It's a business, and its job is to get people to buy more food, not less. And they're really good at doing that, and there's a big research base that explains how supermarkets sh are, should be designed in order to encourage people to buy more food than you had any intention of going in there and getting. And the f rule number one is you always put fruit or flowers first. And you can go to any supermarket in the world and you will find the fresh foods, the fresh foods or what passes for fresh foods um, right at the, at the front. And this has to do with the psychological illusion of making you feel like you're in some outdoor market in Tuscany or um, you know, one of those nice places. Anyway, that's why it doesn't matter whether the, the vegetables are on the right or the left of the entrance, but they just have to be up in the front somewhere place. Um, and this is what Michael Pollan in his book Omnivore's Dilemma called Supermarket Pastoral. And I love showing this picture of him because he's in his office with a poster of my book on his desk. <laughs> uh, uh, rule number two is the most important one. I think, and it's the more uh, products that people see, the more they buy. So the entire purpose of the layout of a store is to get you to see as many products as possible because the more products you see, the more you will buy. And the entire layout of the store is done to do that. Here's the layout of a, uh, some, some market or other. I don't even know which one it is, but it doesn't matter because they're all like this. The aisles are very long. Um, they are calculated to be the maximum distance that you'll be willing to walk without getting so frustrated that you run screaming from the store. And the dairy products are always way back there in the far back corner um, so that you have to walk all the way through the store to get them, which is great for your exercise program, but you're also picking up a few impulse buys along the way. All of this is deliberate. In fact, the layout of a store is so well known that there's a, a supermarket chain in New England called Stu Leonard's um, that only has one aisle. <laughs> you, you enter it at the bottom at the store entrance, and then you go around this maze. And once you're in it, you can't get out of it until you get to the cash register. Um, but there's so many entertaining things going on in the store, you don't even mind. Um, rule number three is you put the highest profit items at eye level. And um, I'm showing this slide here because um, the, it's not an accident which store, which products get at eye level. Companies pay a lot of money to place their products at eye level and at the ends of aisles and at the cash register. Those are called slotting fees. And I always wondered how much a slotting fee cost. And I never knew that until I went to a meeting in Italy. And Margot, where are you? I know that there's one other person here who was at that meeting. When the people from Barilla Pasta actually said at this meeting how much money they had spent to place their products in American supermarkets, and it was $250 million in slotting fees. 
Um, there's big business in this. That brings me to the whole question of what goes on in the center aisles. And the center aisles are where the junk foods are. Now, I know some of you are nutritionists, and I'm a nutritionist, and we're not supposed to call them junk foods. We're supposed to call them foods of minimal nutritional value. Um, <laughs> But I'm going to call them junk foods because everybody knows what they are. They're foods that are high in calories. They're very heavily processed. They're extremely uh, profitable for the makers and for the people who sell them. And in fact, the term junk food is so common that my, that my, <laughs> my this was sent to me by, by my son who lives uh, in Alhambra. And uh, what's underneath that sign is exactly what you would expect to find there. Um, I thought that was pretty funny. Rule number four is if you want, d is dealing with junk food, you put as much sugar in food as you can because it adds value. And it's not the sugar that comes in the packages or even the candy that I'm talking about. It's things like soft drinks that are basically sugar and water. And when I was on book tour for What to Eat in 2006, a reporter for the Los Angeles Times took me to a Vaughn supermarket, which is owned by Safeway, in downtown LA, in a very poor area of downtown LA. Um, and I was just, I, I don't know, we were, there was some photographer there, and I don't know what we were doing, but I was being interviewed. And the, um, I, I was just absolutely stunned by the number of places in the store that sold soft drinks. I had never been in a supermarket that had so many soft drinks per square foot. Um, so this is um, a, one, a shot down the main aisle. You know, there's always a great big long aisle of soft drinks, that's it. And then there's soft drinks at the end of an aisle. There, were a wall, there was a wall of soft drinks at the entrance to the store. There were soft drinks at the end of another aisle. There were soft drinks at the end of another aisle. Remember, this is prime real estate. There were soft drinks at the end of another aisle. There were soft drinks at the end of another aisle. Okay, Gatorade, it's still soft drinks. Um, there were soft drinks at the end of another aisle, and there was an enormous platform of soft drinks on which they were displaying garden furniture. I, di I didn't think you could get out of that store without buying soft drinks, and I went to the, Safeway had just introduced its new organic program and at that point and I went to the produce manager and asked if they had any organic produce the produce manager didn't know they did but the produce manager didn't know it the pricing strategy was also very telling I thought um, because the pricing strategy is also a buy more strategy the large two liter bottles of soft drinks that were at eye level were priced at just under three cents per ounce but if you wanted eight ounce cans, smaller portions, they were on the bottom shelf and they cost more than 10 cents per ounce. And I asked supermarket executives why the price spread was so big. I mean, the cost of the cans can't be that much more. And he, sa he said, um, if people want smaller portions, they should be willing to pay for them. Um, so, you know, I, I sound sort of mean about this, but I actually have a lot of sympathy for food companies caught as they are between pressures from advocates, from regulators, from lawyers who are just dying to sue them over obesity and other issues, and from Wall Street that just simply wants them to make money. And as Michelle Simon said in her really excellent book, App Appetite for Profit, uh, in which she dissects the... Uh, 
responses of food companies to this kind of pressure, she points out that their responses fall into four categories. First, they did nothing. Then they denied that they had anything to do with the problem. And then they frantically started fighting back and changing their products. And I'm not going to say much about the fighting back, although I am an occasional target of threats of lawsuits. And you can read about them on my web and blog site. They're kind of entertaining. Um, but I'll just say that food companies lobby like mad. They're trying to exempt themselves from laws that apply to everybody else. They do a lot of attacking of advocates. Yeah, um, I don't like it, but there it is. Um, they blame inactivity and they blame personal choice. And I'll show you an example of that a little bit later. But what they're really trying to do in order to um, make their, their work appear to be doing some, being part of the solution be, rather than part of the problem, is they're changing their packaging. And that's really what I want to talk about for the next few minutes. Because they're repackaging, making new items, and they're doing a lot of self-endorsing of the healthfulness of their products, and they're dealing with health claims. So let's start with health claims, because this is where the politics really comes into it. Um, Rule number five is you use nutrition and health to sell products, regardless of what those products are. And this became possible when Congress passed the Nutrition Labeling Health and Education Act of 1990, which was the act that put the nutrition facts labels on food products. And the nutrition facts labels, which say how much saturated fat and sodium and sugars um, there are in a product, um, were kind of the, they were going to indicate to people what the bad stuff was. And so the food industry cut a deal with Congress and said, if you're going to make us put the bad stuff on our labels, you have to let us put the good stuff that we have on the labels, too. Prior to that time, the uh, FDA had ruled that if a health claim was on a product saying it lowers cholesterol or helps prevent heart disease, then the food was acting as a drug. And if it was acting as a drug, it had to be treated like a drug. And if it was going to be treated like a drug, then the company would have to do a clinical trial to prove that uh, efficacy and safety. And if you just think for a minute of what a clinical trial of multigrain Cheerios would look like <laughs> and how much it would cost um, and how likely it would be to have a result that had any kind of meaning at all, you can see why they didn't want to do that. So Congress agreed, and they forced the FDA to start approving health claims. And these are packages with some of the health claims that the FDA approved in the first round. These actually have some scientific substantiation behind them. So um, whole grains will help reduce cholesterol, will help reduce the risk of heart disease, oats lower cholesterol, and so forth and so on. So the result of that can be seen in supermarkets today. Um, and this is a um, Kellogg cereal with six different kinds of health claims on it. I bought it a couple of weeks ago. Um, number one are in the upper right-hand corner is um, Kellogg's new way of putting the healthfulness of their products and having and awarding them percentages of the percentages of the good things that are there. 
Number two is it'll make you smart. Number three, it's going to make your heart healthy. Number four is it's got zero grams trans fats, which we now know makes people think it has no calories. Number, <laughs> number five, I'm serious about that. Number five is that it lowers both blood pressure and cholesterol. Number six is it's got an endorsement from the American Heart Association, which only cares about saturated fat and cholesterol, despite the fact that sugars appear nine times in the ingredient list. And this is a sugary cereal like all others. Um, so that's, and this isn't even a bad one. Um, I'll show you a couple of other examples. I love this. These are Ruffles potato chips. The dietary guidelines recommend that most of the fats you eat that are mono and polyunsaturated, these are fried in polyunsaturated fat. Um, here's Cheerios uh, weight loss product. That's pretty amazing. Um, if you eat a couple of servings of Cheerios and use those Cheerios to replace lunch and dinner, um, you can lose. <laughs> Go read the back of the box. That's how it's done. Um, anyway, uh, you see this, uh, this is what Roz Chas called gullible O's. It might help you lose weight. Who's to say? Who knows? Um, uh, some of my favorite products these days, uh, because people, because the FDA has been less and less stringent over time, because it's been ordered to be less stringent by the courts, who say that um, health claims are covered by First Amendment rights, um, more and more ridiculous things are happening. And omega-3, which is the hot new nutrient that fixes everything, is now in peanut butter milk. And I think my favorite is Oreo cookies uh, these days. Um, or here's a potato chips or a kind of, um, these are snack chips. These are proven to lower cholesterol. Isn't this a great way to lower your cholesterol? It's a good source of fiber. It's got natural plant sterols. It doesn't have any trans fat. And as I said, we have evidence now that people read claims like this and forget about the calories. Um, and the other thing that companies are doing is they're self-endorsing the healthfulness of their own products. They do this by setting up their own criteria for evaluating their own products. And PepsiCo has taken the lead on this. It's got its smart spot on it. And, um, and, uh, and hundreds of PepsiCo uh, products qualify for this particular uh, smart spot. And Kraft does exactly the same thing. It has um, what it's called sensible solutions. This one's an excellent source of uh, calcium, and these are Lunchables. Even though this product has a full ounce of sugars and a quarter of the day's allotment of saturated fat and sodium, not something that most nutritionists would consider to be a health food. Well, these are self-endorsements. And there's a supermarket in New England called Hannaford, which for reasons of its own, I still quite don't get why they did this. Um, <clears throat> they got a group of nutrition scientists together and asked them to develop criteria for evaluating products in the store. And the idea would be that they would award one, two, or three stars to every single product in their supermarket on the basis of how nutritious they were, where three would be best. And when they took these criteria, which were independently developed, and applied them to 27,000 products in the Hannaford supermarkets, only 23% of the products in the store qualified for even one star. Um, they were pretty shocked to find that out. And of those 23%, most, 80% or more, were fruits and vegetables in the produce section. 
So uh, fruits and vegetables in the produce section are really worried about all of this because all these packaged foods have all these big fancy health claims on it. And you can track the number of health claims just on antioxidants. It's gone up enormously in the last several years. And so the fruit and vegetable growers are fighting back. And blueberries are now number one antioxidant fruit. Um, you all know that, right? Um, and everybody knows about POM, which is one of the most brilliantly marketed products I've ever seen. So now you can take POM and these adorable little uh, pills that are the cutest things I've ever seen, and you can get POM jelly beans. Um, or here is grape juice. Whatever happened to just grape juice? Twice the antioxidant power of orange juice, and it will fix your immune problems. Um, a high lycopene tomatoes you can buy. Um, so I don't know what happened to food, but um, uh, this, is that. this is my current favorite. I love the ocean mist people, but I, I don't know about this. So now you're supposed to buy artichokes because it's got the highest antioxidant level of uh, any of the other vegetables. Um, and this is, I think, being taken to an extreme that is so ridiculous that um, <laughs> one of my students brought me this. Um, and, the, uh, and one of my other students said, the next one you're going to see is no high fructose corn syrup in fruit. So, um, so this is the situation that's in a so supermarket now. Apparently nobody can buy anything unless it has one of these labels on it. And this is the absolute result of the nutritionism approach to looking at dietary advising. Um, and I want to, that's fine for adults. Um, and, you know, you can say, okay, you're adults, you really should know better, you shouldn't be manipulated by these kinds of things. You ought to be eating on the outside of the supermarket and you know better, but what about kids? And it's when we get to kids that the personal responsibility um, argument just completely falls apart and we get into serious ethical territory here. Uh, the Institute of Medicine in December 2005 came out with this really remarkable report, which was a review of the literature on the effects of food marketing on children's um, food choices. And what the committee that did this report did was to review the literature on the research enterprise that is devoted to teaching companies how to market foods to kids. There is a research enterprise that does precisely this. They give each other awards every year. Um, they, the, the report looked at the research methods that these companies use in order to find out what it is that makes kids want to, to buy a product, the amount of money that is spent on marketing to children, the sales that result, uh, that come as a result and the effects on children's requests and on their health. It's based on 123 studies. It's a very, very impressive piece of work and very amazing to read. Um, so let's start with personal responsibility. Uh, this cartoon was on the uh, Center for Consumer Freedom website uh, this week and somebody sent it to me. How about an anti-obesity program for kids that works? Let's call it parenting. Where are parents in all of this? Well, I think where parents are in all of this is in really, really deep trouble because most parents are not aware of the extent of marketing that is being devoted to their kids. 
Um, and I, it's, it's hard to talk about food marketing because it's so diffuse and there are so many products. And about 35 or $36 billion a year is spent by food and beverage companies on marketing in general. And about $15 billion of that, nobody really knows how much, is spent deliberately to market to children. But here's an example that almost brings it into a number that you can actually or that I can actually comprehend. $24 million, which is what Kellogg spent in 2006 to advertise Cheez-Its. Just Cheez-Its. Um, so if you start thinking about nutrition education and how we're going to educate the public, uh, this is what you're up against. This is just one product. Now, there are three reasons why companies want to market to children. The first is brand loyalty. That's the obvious one. If you drink Coke in instead of Pepsi when you're a kid, you'll drink Coke instead of Pepsi throughout life, or at least that's the hope. The second one is the pester factor, and if any of you who have children know what that one is. Um, it's not all, this is marketing that is not only aimed at children to try to get children to ask their parents for products, but also to ask their parents for products with a really good rationale. That's one of the reasons why there are health claims on everything. Um, and, the th and you see this in action anytime you see a parent with a child in a supermarket. The third one is the one that bothers me the most. And that is what I call kids' foods. The, office, the, uh, the purpose of marketing to children is to get kids to think that they're supposed to eat their own food. They're supposed to have kid cuisine. They're not supposed to eat that boring stuff that their parents are eating. They're supposed to have foods that are made just for them in packages with cartoons, in funny shapes, unidentified food objects, in funny colors, and all of that sort of thing. And I think this is so subversive of parental authority around food issues that it's reasonable enough to really get serious about trying to do something about food marketing. And again, this is extremely intentional um, and very uh, deliberate, intentional, and extremely effective, as that uh, report demonstrated. So let's look at some of the ways in which this is done. Um, you, there are products all over the supermarket that are aimed at kids. You can recognize them instantly because they've got a cartoon on them. And if you take a young child to a, even a pre-literate child or pre-speaking child to a supermarket, that child will head right for the products. And they'll be on the lower shelves. will head right for the products that are aimed at them. Um, a lot of the products are advertised as healthy uh, without really saying so. And a group, the Strategic Alliance, a group in Berkeley, um, Oakland, Oakland, I think, did a, a study last year in which they went around the supermarket and examined products that were aimed at kids that had fruit, pictures of fruit, or gave the impression that these were fruity products, and they didn't find any fruit in any of them. Uh, concentrated fruit juice is not fruit juice, it's sugar. Um, now, other products aimed at kids also use health, health claims on them. Here's a PepsiCo product. It's got smart choices on it. And the reason it's a smart choice is because it's got zero grams of trans fat. Now, I'm happy that trans fats are going out of the food supply. But whenever I see something like this, I think it's a calorie distractor. And in this case, this is a junk food distractor. And you can tell it's junk food by looking at the, um, at the nutrition facts label, anything that's got that many um, ingredients in it is by definition a junk food. So, um, we're not the only ones who are doing this. I've done a lot of traveling in the last year and I was in India in the fall and I was absolutely astounded at 
PepsiCo, which is now talking about, I don't know if you read Fortune magazine, but a week ago there was an article about the president of, uh, or the CEO of PepsiCo, who's a woman from India, and she is positioning PepsiCo as a health food, a wellness corporation, as all of the soft drink companies are trying to do. Well, when I was in India, I saw Frito-Lay potato chips absolutely everywhere. Um, I, it was a very difficult trip, and I was hours and hours out of cities at a lot of time, and in any little place along any little road, there would be a roadside stand. And these are Frito-Lay potato chips, which are owned by Pepsi-Cola. Um, American-style sour cream and onion everywhere in India for 20 rupees, which is the average wage of 200 million people in India. Um, so if you can't sell it here, sell it there. Actually, the Indian food products were really interesting. My pro I mean, some people come home with saris. I come home with Kellogg's. Um, <laughs> this was a box of Kellogg's Choco's cereal that I got in a little market in New Delhi. And when I paid for it, I was given a CD with a Krishna game on it. But the reason that I bought the package, because of what was on the back, getting your child to eat breakfast is a struggle. And one serving of this Choco's cereal has the fiber of two chapatis and the goodness of uh, two glasses of milk and it's got all these vitamins and minerals. So you're supposed to substitute this for chapatis or whatever it is um, the children were eating ahead of time. Um, we're doing a lot of work to sell products overseas um, and even though Kellogg has promised to f phase out its food ads for children, as all of these companies have done, they have promised to mend their ways. Um, the, in Great Britain, which is keeping a very close eye on this sort of thing, they're finding that food companies are sidestepping the promises. And in particular, they single out Kellogg uh, for, if not marketing this way, finding other ways to market to children. And I see this absolutely everywhere. I was in Australia last year, and I couldn't believe the number of Shrek, pro Shrek labeled products in stores aimed at, uh, aimed at kids. Um, the, the products that Shrek was uh, dealing with were ones that were not particularly fruit and vegetable. This was as close as it came to a vegetable. It has the goodness of vegetables, I guess, because uh, some of the Fruit Loops were green. Um, <laughs> There's also in New Zealand, which does the same thing. Their heart association also puts its check mark on products that are low in saturated fat and cholesterol. Uh, not a very good idea. Um, McDonald's is very active. This was the McDonald's in New Delhi, which um, I thought was interesting because of the, you know, everybody's a vegetarian in India, or a lot of people are vegetarians, and so they have a lot of vegetarian entrees. Um, but there was uh, Ronald McDonald sitting with some locals, and a student from Thailand sent me, this is, this is my absolute favorite, namaste. Uh, um, so overall, what we have is a situation in which the food industry, sometimes health professionals, and sometimes the government, are in what appears to be an alliance to encourage people to um, eat more. And I think that this is not that these groups are sitting down and saying, how can we make Americans fat? They're sitting down and, think, and, and saying, how on earth are we going to sell our food products in an environment in which there's twice as much food available as anybody needs, and Wall Street wants us to grow every quarter? And that, I think, is the basis of the problem. And I would be very, very depressed about this if I didn't think that we had an enormous 
enormous, growing, magnificent uh, social movement going on right now around food issues. Um, and I think we're in the middle of what is really a very, very impressive social movement. In fact, I taught a course in social movements last semester in which we took a very close look at uh, the characteristics of food as a social movement. And it's an interesting one because it's not organized, it's extremely dispersed, there are lots and lots of different ways in which people are approaching this, and I'm going to just talk a little bit about some of the ways. Here's one in government, Tom Harkin, who uh, is a Democrat from Iowa, the middle of a farm state, has taken on uh, marketing to children as a particular uh, subject of interest, and this was a hearing that he held a couple of years ago in which he was equating Shrek with Joe Camel and saying we've just got to do something to stop marketing, to stop this kind of marketing to children. So this is the anti-marketing food to children movement. The one you're probably most familiar with is uh, the good, clean, fair, slow food movement. Um, good food, which is healthy for you, clean food for the environment, fair food, uh, which is pays fair wages to the people who are producing it, and slow food, um, which is a revolution and an action taking thing. And Todd, where are you? Todd. Here's Todd, who is creating a slow food chapter um, here. And if you want to know about slow food, talk to him afterwards. How's that for commercial? <laughs> oh. um, the organic movement. Um, here's one that's quantifiable. And notice how all of these are in revolutionary terms. Uh, you can buy an organic revolution. I like that one, an organic revolution t-shirt. Um, but here you can quantify exactly how fast the movement is growing because you can look at the rise in sales of organic products from the early 1990s until the present and it's expected to double again this year. Uh, so organics are uh, one of the most successful aspects of this movement. Everybody is going into organics um, and how, organic, how this is going to play out politically remains to be seen, but it's definitely part of it. The locally grown food movements is another part, also quantifiable because you can count the number of farmers markets, you also can count the number of CSAs, but I don't, of community supported agriculture, but I don't have those data. But I do have the data for farmers markets. Everybody wants a farmers market in their neighborhood. Everybody does. Um, and this is happening all over the country. And when Time Magazine puts locally grown food on its cover, you know this has gone mainstream. So this, too, is a very successful component of uh, the movement. One of the oddest ones, and the one that surprised me the most, that you'll hear about extensively from when Peter Singer comes and talks, is the animal welfare movement. And um, here it used to be that animal welfare was the province of uh, philosophers like Peter Singer or groups like People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, and it's gone mainstream. Uh, there are now groups all over the country that are concerned about the way animals are treated. All you have to do is witness the 143 million pounds of ground beef that were um, 
recalled by the Department of Agriculture because of the way animals were treated as exposed by the Humane Society. There are legislatures of states all over the country that are considering legislation to phase out pig crates, sow crates, these are the crates where um, pregnant sows are confined during their pregnancy. That's sort of an easy place to do political activism. It's pretty hard to see those. And groups like the Union of Concerned Scientists and Center for the Science, for Centers, Center for Science and the Public Interest, that were never seen as animal rights groups are interested in animal welfare. It turns out that if you treat animals better, the meat is better and it's healthier for people and the environment as well. So there are ethical, plenty of ethical issues in that as well. Um, the place where it's easiest to talk about movement is because you can, it's so close to home, is in the school food movement. And here it's been spearheaded by Alice Waters, but it's not just Alice Waters and the Edible Schoolyard where this is happening. It's happening all over the country. Um, places where people go into schools, look at what the kids are eating, are appalled by what they see um, and march down to the principal and say something has to be done about this. And this is a grassroots political movement that is happening in locally, in small places, um, but, every, but happening everywhere. I, I see it as grassroots democracy of the people, by the people, for the people. It's really impressive. Um, and it's even happening in New York. There's a private school in New York called the Calhoun School that has this remarkable chef who has completely transformed uh, the way uh, the food in this place is served. Um, this is about as close to Google as it gets, I think. And he brings the cost of what he's doing in at the same cost as the New York City Public School because he's out to demonstrate that this is, not only is this doable, but yes, the kids will eat it, they will like it, they will complain that the, school, the food in school is better than what they're getting at home, um, and, they will ask, and they will ask for cooking lessons. It's pretty impressive. And okay, that's a private school. Uh, but the New York City public school system, one of the most troubled school systems in the country, 1,200 schools, a mammoth undertaking hired Chef Jorge Colazo to come in and do something about the food, and school by school, they are going through and trying to do something about the way kids are eating. And I visited a couple of the schools um, in the program, and some of them work really well, and some of them don't work so well. But the one, ones that do work well are very impressive. And I was in Bushwick, which is one of the poorest areas of Brooklyn, and I was in a junior high school where I saw junior high school boys eating salads with my very own eyes. Um, <laughs> it was really amazing. Um, and then there's Google. You know, if you have infinite resources, you really can do a lot if you have a political will. And if you're lucky enough to go to Google and see what they're doing, it's very, very impressive. Um, but as I said, that's infinite resources. But even with lower resources, it's possible. So these are the kinds of things um, that I've been talking about and thinking about these days. And uh, you know, my summary of it is that, yes, you should exercise personal responsibility. And yes, personal responsibility is important. And every time you uh, go to a store and buy something, you're voting with your fork for the kind of food system that you want. And my sort of rules are, 
Um, if you're in a grocery store, you shop the perimeter. You don't, if you try to stay out of the center aisles. If you do get stuck in the center aisles, you never buy anything with, five in, with more than five ingredients, with an ingredient you can't pronounce, with anything artificial, with a health claim on it because you want to discourage them from those misleading things, with a cartoon on a package because you want them not to be advertising directly to your children. And if you don't want kids eating junk food, you just can't have it in the house. That's personal responsibility. On the social responsibility side, I really think we need to consider some very serious policy changes. And these can be very small and on a local level, or they can be absolutely massive and almost beyond comprehension. But the wonderful thing about food is you have a choice of where you want to go with it. I think the marketing to kids is sort of high on my list of let's stop food companies from marketing to kids. I don't think they should be marketing to kids at all under any circumstances at any age. I think we need a big fix on school meals and that those uh, school meals should be accompanied by an education program that's consistent with, um, with the meals themselves and that part of it should be to teach kids where food comes from as well as how to cook it. I think there's a lot we could do with portion sizes. It's hard to ask companies to reverse the enormous increase in portion sizes that they've gone through because so many people feel cheated if they get something smaller. But I do think there are ways in which they could introduce a price break for people who wanted to have a smaller portion. When I say that to people who run restaurants, they get really, really, really upset. Um, what are you trying to do, put us out of business? Um, portion sizes are very economical for restaurants because the cost of basic food ingredients is so low. But I still think there's a big place for doing something about portions. Uh, we could do something about pricing strategies so that healthier foods are priced less than unhealthier foods. Um, I think it's important to develop community systems where agriculture, food, nutrition, and health are integrated. Uh, we certainly could try to do something about farm supports. It's not going to happen this year, um, but regimes do change, and one can have hope. Um, and then I think on a longer scale um, and a somewhat more remote scale, we really need to do something about campaign financing laws so that the, so that the congressional representatives that we elect uh, are more, can, can express a greater interest in public health than in corporate health. Um, and we have a chance to do something about that this year. Let's hope we do. Um, and then finally, I think it's time to take a really hard look at the way Wall Street rates firms and at Wall Street regulations in general. Other countries do not put the kind of pressure on their corporations as Wall Street does here. And I think there are ways in which we could look at that and try to make some changes there. I mean, this all may be, uh, it seems like fantasy, but I think that making small changes in schools, for example, can have a very, very large impact on a child's life. And it's very worth doing, and it's very doable. Um, so that's the kind of thing I talk about. And uh, What to Eat was translated into Hebrew, of all things, this year. And it came with a, the article about it came with a cartoon. It's my first cartoon, and I'm very proud of it. Um, <laughs> So I thought I'd show that to you. And then in case you're wondering what I'm doing next, this is what I'm doing next. <laughs> oh. um, it's a book about the pet food recall and its implications for food safety. So I'll, uh, I'll leave you with that. And thank you very much. It's been an honor to be able to uh, talk to you.
Kabiyun. We'll take some questions now. Go ahead. You're up. Okay. Um, my name's Nikki, and thanks so much. Um, I'm really interested in the marketing to children, and I have heard a lot of arguments that it really is up to parents, and that it's not an issue of child the child's agency, because the parents are the responsible mm -hmm. figures in the household and in that child's life. We know that some children do not have super responsible parents there, but... Mm -hmm. What would you really say to someone, and you started addressing that, who mm -hmm. has that argument against mm -hmm. um, eliminating marketing to children? Yeah, I have food. lots of anecdotes about this. I don't have small children anymore. My children are grown, and then some. Um, but everyone I know who has children tells me stories like this. We don't have a television in our house. We have never taken our child to a fast food place. Uh, we have never given our child fast food. We do not have sodas in the house. When we drive down the street and our child sees golden arches, our child says, Mommy, 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 stop here. I want, I want to eat there. And when we say to our child, how do you know you want to eat? Because it's good. How do you know it's good? They do not have a clue how their kids know about this. They don't have a clue. They're stunned by it. I have parents tell me that they go into a supermarket and their children head right for products that they swear they know nothing about. And then they think about it and they say, oh, there are these cartoon characters on the diapers. There are these cartoon characters on, um, on children's play equipment. They're on baby bottles, on things that kids play with that parents don't even notice. And the kids recognize it instantly. Kids are very smart about those things and make those connections. And I have friends who have two litters of children many years apart. Um, you know, I mean, if you think about it. And, the, um, and what they tell me is that it was much, much easier with the first set of children than with the second set of children. That the first set of children, they, had, they were able to control what was going on. And with the second set of children, the children think they know more about what they're supposed to eat than their parents do. That is the point of the marketing. So when you see this, you're seeing very successful food marketing. This is as good as it gets. And the parents are stunned by it. They don't know how to deal with it. Who wants to fight with their kids about food? I didn't. I can't imagine that anybody wants to fight with their kids about food. There are other things to fight with them about, <laughs> right? You know, and you think it's harmless, so I'll just buy them this box of cereal. My kids are still talking about um, the cereal that I wouldn't let them buy, but it was a lot easier in those days. You know? So I just think you have to, you know, it's, if marketing, I've heard advertising agency people talk about marketing. Its purpose is to, is to go below the radar of critical thinking. You're not supposed to notice it. If you do notice it, they made a mistake. You know? There's lots of seeds. Uh, I wondered what you thought about this movement to get calorie information on the menus of mm -hmm. restaurants that have a lot of chains, like the chain mm -hmm. restaurants, and getting calorie information on the menus. Yeah, I, I, I'm reluctantly in favor of it. Um, and, I, and I say that, and I'll explain about it. I mean, it's New York City is, uh, has proposed this, and the New York City Health Department is very unusual. We have a public health director who's interested in public health, um, and a mayor who backs him up. 
And this is a very unusual configuration. And so uh, he, his name is Tom Frieden. He's wonderful. And he looked at what the, what the scope of responsibility was in the health department and what he could do. There was very limited in what he could do about heart disease and, do, and obesity in New York City. So on heart disease, he banned trans fats. And that went through. And trans fats are trivial because they're easily replaced. And their heart disease, they have nothing whatsoever to do with calories or obesity because whatever replaces them will replace the calories. So on the, calorie, on the obesity side, he thought it would be good to try calorie labeling. There was one study in the American Journal of Public Health that said that if people saw calorie labels, they would choose lower calorie items. And it's still in the courts. It's been in the courts for a year. Um, it comes out of the court, it goes back into courts. I mean, whatever happens, the National Restaurant Association is fighting this tooth and nail. Um, I think it will be a very interesting experiment to have calories posted next to small, medium, and large servings. And as a visual uh, identification of what a calorie is, because nobody has a clue how many calories are in anything. So this will at least give people some idea of how many calories are in things and that bigger portions have bigger calories, which is if I could teach one concept, <laughs> just one, it would be that one. Um, and th they are going to do a research project. So they've got baseline data. They're all set to go. Let's see if it works. My reluctance comes from my conversation with the uh, president of Chipotle who I talked to, a couple of, um, talked to a couple of weeks ago, who says, I don't have any trouble with calorie labeling. On a burrito, I'm going to have 500 to 1,300 calories. <laughs> you know, that's not very helpful. Um, he says it's personal responsibility. If you want a smaller burrito, just don't ask for so much. Um, you know, and, I, and in talking to him about it, I said, but you're charged the same amount of money, no matter how much people are buying. And he said, well, that's personal responsibility. I believe in personal responsibility. So we're back to that again. I think we need to create an environment that makes it easier to eat less. Um, and he actually has that in his store, because you can buy one taco for $2. But the price isn't up on the menu board. You wouldn't know that unless you asked. And I asked him why the price isn't up. He said, because if it was up, everybody would buy them. <laughs> no. I know, it's a. Uh, I'm for it, so I'm for it. I don't know if it'll work, but I'd like to see it tried. Hi. Um, you've talked about government action in terms of farm subsidies and school lunches, but I was wondering if you could talk about food stamps and if there's any movement to change, to encourage people on food stamps to make... Mm -hmm. Different yeah, that gets choices. into really interesting, the interesting issues. The question is, how about forcing people who get food stamps to buy healthy foods with them? Um, there have been lots and lots and lots of attempts to do that. But it, it, gets, it actually gets mired in personal responsibility issues. Um, it gets stuck in that. Um, so that why should the poor be controlled in a way that wealthy people aren't? Um, what you really want to do is make it cheaper for people on food stamps to buy healthier foods. Um, and that, it seems to me, is something that is doable. Um, food stamps are allowed to be used in some farmers' markets. Um, and if they were allowed to, if the food stamps were worth more in a farmers' market, then that would be an incentive without 
forbidding people to buy junk food with food stamps, for example. So, complicated issue. Food and commodities, the prices have gone up dramatically in the past year or so. Um, what do you think is going on and what does this uh, mean for your analysis? Mm -hmm. It means that three things are going on. Number one is we're growing corn for ethanol. Number two is the price of oil has gone up. And number three is the demand for meat has gone up, which means the demand for grain has gone up in places like China and India, or mostly China. Um, and so that's considered a perfect storm for rising food prices. And, um, you know, it's again, the, if the price of junk food goes up and the price of fruits and vegetables go down, that would be just great as far as I'm concerned. But the highest rise percentage-wise in prices has been in fruits and vegetables. So I don't see a reverse in that. Um, you know, some governments are trying to, are already doing intervention programs to try to do something about prices, and we're already seeing food riots in places throughout the world. It's going to be interesting to watch and see what happens as the price of oil continues to rise. So, a very interesting experiment. I'm just wondering if you have any ideas on how to deal with the brown apple moth. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. I was wondering if you have any ideas on how to deal with the brown apple moth. And I'm sorry, I don't know what that is. Okay. Well, how about what? mercury and fish then? Mercury and fish. Mercury and fish. What's the law? Uh, should you not eat fish because oh. of uh, mercury? Oh, because of the, Well, mercury is only in four or five fish. It's pretty easy to avoid them. Um, you can... Um, you know, you just want to avoid the big predatory fish. And that takes care of the mercury pretty easily. If you're a, um, you know, if you're young, female, and potentially pregnant, you have to be a little bit more careful. But there's not much evidence that um, a little mercury once in a while is harmful to adults. It's been very hard to find any evidence that it's harmful. Um, so I don't think that, I, mercury is not so hard to deal with if you just don't eat albacore tuna and, um, swordfish and whatever the other three are. I never can remember them. No. So in California, there were nutrition standards set, and industry wasn't a huge part of the process of developing those standards. Um, and they went through in 2005 um, school nutrition standards. So I'm wondering now industry has come in and decided that they want to play a part in developing standards. Mm, isn't that helpful of them? At the federal, <laughs> at the federal level. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering what you think their role should be and if we should partner with industry to develop standards at the mm -hmm. federal level for schools or if we should develop them and, and then let them respond to that. Yeah, I'm actually opposed to nutrition standards. I think it's a nutritionism approach, and it gets you into trouble. Because suppose you set a standard that a product can only have 25% of the calories from sugars. OK, we'll make it 24 and a half. It's a slippery slope. And that's exactly what the food companies have done in getting their products into school. They're still junk foods. They're just better junk foods. It's an interesting philosophical question, since we're talking philosophy, whether a better junk food is a good thing. Um, and I can argue it either way, depending on what kind of a mood I'm in. Um, but you know, everybody knows what a junk food is. And if it has a gram less sugar or a few milligrams less sodium, does that make it better? I think, it's, I, I think we should have food-based standards. 
And if we had food-based standards, then we would say there should be a certain number of fruits and vegetables and a certain number of servings of meat and dairy foods and, um, you know, and a certain number of junk foods. And then it would be a lot simpler. Uh, but the food industry would much prefer to have it this way because they can easily make products to fit those standards. And alliances with food companies are very difficult because the goals are different. The goals of public health and the goals of business are, are different. They're, not, they're, they're just not the same, and they rarely overlap. They may overlap in, to some extent, but that has been used as the rationale for making healthier junk foods. PepsiCo doesn't say that the smart spot on its product makes it a health food. PepsiCo says it's a better choice. Um, and so you have to ask the question, are better choices better? Do they make people healthier? I don't think we know that yet. Hi. So who, if any, of the presidential candidates is more likely to possibly implement or push for some of those socially responsible policies? I don't know. Neither one of them is talking about it, <laughs> as far as I can tell. We've excluded the third one I excluded clearly. the third one. <laughs> I did. I did. He's not talking about it either. Hmm. Hi. Um, why can't we call it junk food? Why are nutritionists or dietitians so afraid to call it junk food? Especially because now? the mantra of dietetics is there is no such thing as a good or a bad food. All foods are part of a healthful diet. Is that a little antiquated? The keys to good nutrition are balanced variety and moderation. <laughs> with, with a number... Didn't I do that well? <laughs> But don't you think that's a little antiquated with the number of foods that I'm are... I'm sorry, I missed that. Do you think that's a little antiquated? based on the number of foods that are being developed? Um, you want me to criticize the American Dietetic Association in public? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure what you're asking. Um, that's the, yeah, I mean, that's the advice. The American Dietetic Association is very closely aligned with the food industry. Many dietitians work for food companies. Um, and they have partnerships and alliances with all of the major food companies. I got an email today from somebody who was very upset because um, some reporter who's just discovered that the American Dietetics Association has an alliance with Coca-Cola. Hello. Of course they have an So does the American Diabetes Association. Um, The, um, I mean, they all do. And so if you buy the idea that, uh, that, you know, the food industry is going to exist. It's not going to go away. So one approach to dealing with food companies is to form alliances with them. Let's partner with food companies. Well, that's a pact with a food company. I, I, they've got a lot more resources than most professional organizations. And the, you know, if you really want to see how the alliances play out in a really easy way, the American Dietetic Association has nutrition fact sheets on its website. Um, and you can, every one of those fact sheets has a sponsor, a corporate sponsor. And you can predict from what the fact sheet is about who the sponsor is. So, of course I think they should be arguing for um, some foods are better than others. Of course some foods are better to eat than others. Nobody's saying don't eat junk food, just don't eat much of it. That's all. I like junk food in its place. <laughs> junk food has a place in a healthful diet. <laughs> what, uh, what do you think of taxes on high calorie foods like you know, tobacco as one of the tools mm -hmm. to reduce consumption? 
-hmm. Yeah, the question was about taxation. Um, I don't know how to think about it because uh, it's a slippery slope again. If uh, the only really clean product for doing a tax that's just totally junky is a soft drink, right? Because it's sugar and water and nothing else. There's no nu nutritional value beyond calories. So that would be an easy choice for taxes. The minute you get into anything else that's got nutrients in it, you're in a very, very difficult place. And it's very hard to argue uh, what's a good food and what's a bad food and where it fits in between. I wouldn't know how to do it. It's a nutrient-based approach to defining foods. And there are lots and lots of these ways of defining what a healthy food is now. There are indexes, nutrition quality indexes. Watch for them. Five or six of them have been developed in the last year, um, each claiming to be better than the one before. I, I like what um, I like the one that Hannaford did because it's very simple. It's very, very simple. And the others are much more complicated where you can make fine distinctions between one sugary cereal and another. That makes no sense to me. But I wouldn't know how to do a tax policy like that. Okay, I so, see it's, so it's not my approach. Also, it's a regressive tax. I see a lot of people with hands up, but and Marion did tell me she could take an infinite number infinite. of questions. <laughs> but... Um, I think we're going to call this part of the um, event to a close. I invite everybody who wants to continue the discussion to come tomorrow to Manzanita Dining Commons at 10, where we'll have Chris Gardner and David Magnus kick off a discussion with Marion and continue dis talking about these issues. So Thanks thank so much. The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.